In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And it's a very special morning this morning, Helen, because it's your birthday. Oh, yes, it is. I know. And Happy more, birthday. Thank you very much. And I'm going for another booster jab today. So there you go. What a lovely <laughs> gift for the National Health Service to give yes. you. <laughs> You'll be glowing in the dark. You'll be oh, so super vaccinated. That's right. <laughs> well, a couple of shout outs before um, we start on this week's episode, because as, as listeners will know, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the National Trust for Scotland and Historic Environment Scotland. And we've had some lovely feedback and we've also had people coming back from the National Trust and Historic Environment Scotland themselves. So particularly to the the National Trust, first of all, I put up a, a post on Instagram asking if you could identify five of the different sites in the care of his, of the National Trust. And uh, back they came saying, can we guess? So that set up a little bit of a conversation. So I promised we'd give them a shout out. And also Mandy Tidwell, because she got she was the listener to get the five right. So big shout out to Mandy Tidwell, oh. who's always an expert on everything Scottish. So well, uh, well, well done, done Mandy. Her. Well done, Mandy. And Liz, I think just for sake of um, clarity, it's the National Trust for Scotland for that Scotland. we're talking about. Absolutely. It's just such a mouthful when you're trying to I get know. that at NTS and HES, much easier. But I've also been on an elusive search this week because I look after the Instagram social media for what you great tech news that we are. Technologically advanced, Liz. <laughs> right, it's a good post if it gets six likes. However, we I have been creeping slowly up in terms of the number of followers of the Scottish Blethers Instagram account. And I've been sitting at 499 for weeks since I went on an elusive search for that 500th follower. Oh, oh yes, we've got and, to get that. We've got to get 500. It's a beautiful number. It is, but it went down. Somebody, somebody left us, so it went down to 498. So I'm, it went back up again, 499. But I'm still, so if there's anybody out there, bring along a friend, make them follow. Let's get up to 500. <laughs> it's a bit like the car and the petrol. The petrol in the car, Liz, the other day when we were out, we had 44 miles left on the clock and 
a little man who had no petrol at his petrol station allowed us to put two litres in. And the minute we put two litres in, the, no the number of miles left re reduced ra dramatically to 43 rather than going up. But <laughs> Yes, we've been out and about this week having fun. We've been posting about that. But uh, my tours start proper next week, next Saturday. So we're going to be having a little change to the format of Scottish Blethers. We'll still continue, but a little change, more of the blethering as we're out and about and, and what we're encountering. But we'll tell you all about that in next week's episode. Because for the last of our current format, episode 82, we're tackling a contentious, a difficult, an uncomfortable topic, which is Scotland's role in slavery, in the slave trade and in the plantations in the West Indies and in America, and how Scotland became wealthy on the back of this abhorrent trade, as, as Prince William just referred to recently. And this has really been prompted by a visit that I did over the last few weeks, which was out to the southern states of the United States, down into Florida and then up through Georgia into South Carolina, and particularly in Charleston, where I went walkabout in Charleston. You can't help but be struck by the Scottish names that appear everywhere. Um, we were up to our necks in it, as they say. Yes, I've never been to that part of America. In fact, I've only been to a couple of parts to, of America, thanks to you, Liz, because I've been over to Seattle with the, the Rick Steves Guide Summit, but then we went down to Oregon, and that's really my total knowledge of America in person. So interesting to hear about your trip to Georgia and to the Carolinas, Liz. Yeah, and to say it wasn't just as plantation owners, and as we'll find out, Scots were definitely involved in that. But as you walk along a street like Trad Street in the historic section of Charleston, what I was being struck by the plates, you know, commemorating this historic trail around around Charleston, it was the doctors, the merchants, the lawyers, all Scottish names, the Scottish Presbyterian Church, the ministers there. But of course, the ministers were there for the Scots, because this was the hugely contentious issue that was at the root of slavery, that these people, these enslaved people, as I've now learned that we should call them rather than slaves, because this was something that was done to them. It didn't define them as individuals. So these enslaved people were not able to access the church. And that's what made it possible to, to impose the, the terrible um, suffering upon them, as we'll learn. But slavery, as we know it, didn't really begin in the 18th century. We do have, going right back to medieval Scotland, we do have what some people would consider was slavery. Yes, because there was a, a number of sort of groups of people who were sort of bound to various estates or landowners or industry owners, coal mining, for example, a lot of tied houses, which allowed people to be tied to the estate. If you don't have a job, you don't have anywhere to stay. So therefore, how do you leave your job? So it, there was a lot of things. And down in the borders, Liz, there was a, a fascinating sort of tradition. They were known as the bondagers. That was people who worked on the land and the, the hind which was the name of the ploughman. The ploughman was known as the hind, and he was employed for a period of set number of years to a farm, but he also had to provide a, another person, and that became, it was normally his wife. He would normally marry, and the wife would become a bondager as well. 
and they were they went to um, they were hired from hirings in the market towns, the beginning of the season, and then they were bonded or bondagers to a farm for a number of years. So that was not slavery as such, but so they were they could not they could do nothing other than work for that master. Yeah, I suppose that the, the the way in which some people defined it was a a, a form of servitude where they were actually indentured, which meant that they, they, were, they had to work for their employer, but they did receive some sort of payment or food or some sort of produce in exchange for it. But of course, the ones that didn't were the ones that were criminals and vagabonds and beggars who were shipped in very large numbers across to the, the new colonies as they began to open up towards the end of the 17th century. So in 1701, when you look at the records for the slaves in Barbados, of the 25,000 slaves in Barbados, 21,700 of them were white slaves. They were called red legs or red shanks because when they got there, of course, no suntan lotion, sunscreen in those days. So their fair skin of the Celtic Scots was burned red raw. So that's why they got the name red legs or red shanks. And of course, in Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Kidnapped, that's where Davy Balfour is set when he's kidnapped onto the pirate ship. That's where he's bound for before the shipwreck and he has his adventures in Scotland. He's bound for white slavery across in the West Indies. Yes, but as when we talk about slavery, the slave trade, we're probably thinking mostly about the 18th century into the early 19th century. And for many years, you know, in Scotland, we had this impression that we had nothing to do with the slave trade or the plantations in, in the, the New World. There was a, a, an exhibition that took place a few years ago called It Wasn't Us. We didn't do it. It wasn't us. And there was the idea that slave owners didn't wear kilts. <laughs> Yes, and and really, we, we are now fast realising that we are completely wrong in all of that. That they, You mentioned the, the educated people, the doctors, the nurses, the administrators, the ministers who were, you saw the names of them over in America. Well, of course, we were a very educated country. So that's when people needed people to write, to look after, to administer, to be the professionals. It was the Scots who went over to the plantations, to the areas where they were using enslaved people. Yeah, and I suppose we can blame the reason for this on the 1707 Act of Union, because anybody that knows their Scottish history knows that before the Act of Union, Scots didn't have any colonies. There was the terrible attempt to set up their own colony with the Darien scheme, but the rules were strict that they couldn't trade through the English ports. And so we, did, we had very, very few slave ships going out of Scotland until after 1707 the ports in England were already established so Bristol, London, Liverpool that was the centre for this triangular slave trade the routes going out so not many Scots journeys but certainly plenty of plantation owners. Yeah, and the Scots families were, were very clever, if that's the right way to put it, in that they made sure that throughout, right down through the supply chain, there was members of the family in charge, whether they were the overseers or the dispatchers or, or the, the ship's captains, but right down through the supply chain from, you know, to bring tobacco, sugar or, or cotton over, there were members of the family, so they were in total control. And that's how they, where the money came from. Yeah, but as more and more academic research 
peels back the layers and uncovers the grimy past, we find that the Scots were, as I say, up to their neck in it. The Scottish economy, from the bottom to the top, was entirely dependent or linked to the, the trade which involved the use of enslaved people. And of course, that was how Glasgow got its wealth, because of course it was on the West Coast, so it was the ideal site for the, the trade coming in. So first of all, it was the sugar and the rum and then it and the cotton. And then it became, through time as the Americas opened up, it became the tobacco coming in through Glasgow. Even Robert Burns, you know, who you think of a man's a man for all that, the great egalitarian, he at one time was thinking about going out to a plantation to become a bookkeeper. So it was throughout, it was out throughout Scots society. Yes, of course, he, he was going out, not, not, I'm sure he never really thought it through. He was running away, wasn't he? So the farthest place he could go was over to Jamaica, but he he didn't go. But you're right, he writes these wonderful poems and then suddenly he was really about to be right in the midst of inequality. But is that just the lens that we view it? He didn't he know yes. he wasn't, you know, or is the, he knew, but that was the way in which he could make his fortune. Yes. Yeah, so, so so if you go around many of the, the cities in, in uh, Scotland today, you'll find streets such as Jamaica Street that, that show our links with the, the West Indies. And, you know, in 1790, the trade between Scotland and the West Indies was equivalent to £50 million in today's money. So, you know, that money trickled down through the Scottish society. And that was really what kick-started the Industrial Revolution in Scotland. You think of names like Tate and Lyle, the sugar company. Lyle was a Scot, you know, and Ewing from Glasgow was the richest sugar producer in Jamaica. Yes, and of course, because of the geographic position of, of the west coast of Scotland, the western ports and the the, the east coast of, of America and the, east, and the West Indies, they could actually reduce the number of weeks it took to bring something like tobacco over to Glasgow. And Scotland became the importer of tobacco and then the exporter out to Europe of Virginia tobacco. So the money, it was a huge opportunity for money and Glasgow benefited, as did many of other parts of Scotland. Yep, so if you take a walk around the merchant city of Glasgow today, you'll see streets like Glassford Street, Ingram Street. These were the merchants, the tobacco lords, the cotton kings that were making the money and it was filtering down through it. But even the hidden clues to Scotland's involvement in the in slavery, if you go to George Square, you know, some of the statues that are standing in George Square at the heart of Glasgow, Lord Clyde Campbell and uh, others were responsible for many of the um, suppressions of the uprisings that came as we moved into the 19th um, century. So, you know, the, the hints are there. Scotsman John Gladstone, he's at one of the statues as well. He was a, a son of William Ewart Gladstone, who was the, the, the Liberal Prime Minister of, of um, Great Britain four times. So, you know, it's there weaved through the fabric of the city of Glasgow, but not just Glasgow, Edinburgh. Can't claim that it didn't have, wasn't tainted by this stain. Yeah, and and I think you know you just going back into Glasgow for a second or two. These statues in George Square, 
I mean, even as a tourist guide and having studied Scottish history, as I've walked around George Square in the past, I thought, I don't recognise these names. I'm not quite sure. That must be some some Victorian person who's you know long since forgotten. But actually, you're doing this kind of research and this opening up of Scotland's or the opening of Scotland's eyes to its involvement in in the slavery slavery and the slave trade. These people are real people, and their story is real and has to be told. Yep. And, you know, we're, we're, we're familiar with Glasgow, but, you know, we're beginning to see more. Like my own daughter went to Dollar Academy, which is in central Scotland. And uh, Dollar Academy, the foundation, the money was willed by um, a slave master. Likewise, Bathgate Academy, the wee free church of Scotland, you know, the most Presbyterian form of religion. It was founded on profits and donations founded on the the slave trade. And Glasgow University, perhaps one of the first to recognise, to research, and then to make recompense, um, Glasgow University was benefited directly from um, the slave trade in Africa and the Caribbean in the 18th and 19th century. They estimate, they did an an audit, and they estimate that they made £200 million in today's money. So they've got this reparative justice programme, not giving money back to the current generations, but to look at a centre for the study of slavery, to unfurl all our, our the past and our ties, but also to look at establishing ties with the University of the West Indies today. So they offer scholarships so that uh, impoverished people can come and study at the at the University of Glasgow today. Yes, it's it's you go back into education you with the University of Glasgow, but in Edinburgh, you mentioned Dollar Academy just outside Edinburgh, but many of the private schools in Edinburgh, uh, the fee-paying, independent fee-paying schools were founded by people who made their money through slavery as well. People like James Gillespie, who was a, a snuff and tobacco merchant, um, who gave all his money to the founding of the James Gillespie School for Girls, which again, going back to, to books, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. But, you know, these schools now, if you go onto their websites, you'll see that they are making sure that the pupils who attend the schools are very well aware of the part their founder, their benefactor played in in history, um, including in the slave, the slavery and the slave trade. Yeah, and this has come about by contemporary academics going back into the research records, and there are plenty of records available to look through, you know, letters coming back from people who've moved out to the colonies and um, working in working on the plantations or benefiting from them. Um, so as they go back, they find out more and more. And of course, one of the more recent revelations has been the extent to which the new town of Edinburgh was built on black slavery. Many of the houses in the new town had direct links with slave trade but perhaps you know most visitors when they come to Scotland visit Edinburgh and they'll go past Butte House which is the official residence of the First Minister of Scotland and it has many links to the slave trade. It was first the home of John Innes Crawford who inherited his father's estates in Jamaica when he was just five years old, the Belfield Sugar Plantation and then it was sold on to a figure that's quite um, well known in Scottish history, history started up the first census, Sir John Sinclair of Ulster. He took up residence in Butte House and he was an MP 
and then on to Charles Oman, who bought it from Sinclair. Um, he had connections to the Trinity Estate in St Mary, Jamaica. So on and on through the century, we see these links. The people who had money had made that money through slavery. Yes, and and still and you know, remaining in the in the new town there, just on the other side, the other end of George Street, um, you've got St Andrew's Square, and place of great prominence is Dundas House, which was the home of Lawrence Dundas, who owned plantations in Granada and Dominica. You know, so you know, just I think if you went into the foundations of of much of the new town, much of Edinburgh, you would find that money came from the slave trade and through slavery and the plantations. Yeah, and of course, they always say that history is written by the victor. I mean, when you walk, when you're standing outside um, Dundas House, one of the first things you see is the bronze statue. Um, today, it's the headquarters, of Royal, or it's not headquarters, it's now a, a, a Royal Bank of Scotland outlet. What do you call yeah. it? A branch, branch, <laughs> a branch. That's the word, not an outlet. A branch of the. You're the, thinking well, of shopping again. Oh, I know <laughs> retail. I'm thinking of the money going out rather than the money coming in. But when you look at it, there's this bronze statue there of the fourth Earl of Hopton, and you know it's it's history presenting itself. We taught. You know, that this was a great man who was lauded for his military success during the Napoleonic Wars, a great person, much loved by his his soldiers and whatever. But he put down a bloody revolution, a slave revolution in the most gruesome of ways. Um, so this suppression put back abolition by almost 40 years in Granada. So, you know, it's, it's about the way, the perspective from which you view history. And it's a, a, a case of, out of sight, out of mind. How could we do this? Well, obviously, the ordinary Scot didn't know what was going on. They had no involvement of this. But when we actually peel back the layers, we show that that just wasn't the case, that they did know what was going on. We've always had black people in Scotland. They were present at the Scottish Royal Court as early as the 16th century. But when they were there, they enjoyed a high status. They were rewarded well. And it wasn't until racial slavery was introduced in the 18th century, basically, Mm -hmm. that we began to get this idea of race and racial superiority, which could enable man to inflict such inhumanity on his fellow man. Yes, and some of the portraits which are available uh, now in various galleries or in houses, you'll show this, the the place that these um, servants had in, in the family. And there are one or two quite interesting ones. The Glassford family one, where there is a, I think they can find that some of the faces have been painted out of their black servants. But then the other one is Dido Bell in, in Schoon Palace. Yeah, quite a big difference there because, you know, the, the first before we, we go on to Dido, I think the important thing is that in those days it was very high status to have an exotic servant. And when they were out in the plantations out in the West Indies and and, 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 and the Americas, the, the, the slaves didn't, or the enslaved people, didn't just work in the fields on the plantations. They, of course, were in the owner's home. You know, they were as housekeepers, maids, butlers, you know, they, they were there to help. And so when the, the Scottish families decided to return to Scotland, very often they brought their servants with them to help them on the journey, particularly if it was a male travelling on his own. And so when they brought them back to Scotland, they kept them as slaves in Scotland. So that's how they became known. 
But Dido Bell was a quite different. Before we go to Dido, another you know important figure in Edinburgh, Malvina Wells. Yes, yeah, she's she's fascinating because she was you know, born born into slavery over in the Caribbean, and she when she came back to when she came back as a house servant back to Scotland, she became a, a house servant to a Mrs. McRae. And she was worked for Mrs. McRae for some time, but then she had her freedom in Scotland and Malvina Wells actually became an independent lady. She lived in Thistle Street on her own and in fact gave out, rented out her rooms to a, to a seamstress. And I then think it was, it just shows how well Mrs. McRae and Malvina Wells, you know, the, the servant got on because as they both were approaching their sort of senior years, I think Malvina Wells was into her 70s and Joanna McRae was slightly older That and, and widowed, Joanna McRae was widowed. Malvina Wells went back to live with Joanna McRae. They were companions. And then when eventually Malvina Wells did die, aged 82, it was Joanna McRae's son who registered her death and she is buried in a grave just beside the family grave in St John's Churchyard in Edinburgh and that only grave in Edinburgh of somebody who was born a slave. Yeah, so in some cases they were taken into the home and of course the big, big, most important factor was that as they became integrated into the home, into Scottish society, many of them were able to be baptised. And this was the crucial thing because the slavery, the cruelty, the abhorrent treatment was inflicted on people because it had a racial basis. Many of the slaves were sold by what was described as people of my own complexion. With tribal wars in Africa, it was black selling black into slavery. And so out of that came this idea that there was a different racial perspective and that this terrible cruelty could be inflicted on them accordingly. They were not Christian. They were not like us. And so when people could be baptised, that then meant in the the mindset of the the people, that they could not inflict the same cruelty on them. And so many former slaves, as they came to Scotland, were baptised and then became free on the the back of that. I know, and it's it's almost the head can't take in that, you know, if you're baptised, then I won't beat you. If you're not baptised, then I can beat you. It's just shocking. But as I say, I, I took a, a group, a small group round Scoot Palace a few years back, and one member of the of the group was a, a woman of colour. They were American, uh, no, they were English, they were from London, and she was a woman of colour, and she just stood transfixed in front of the portrait of the two young girls in Scoon Palace. And this was one of them, Dido Bell, and the other was her cousin. Dido Bell was the daughter of the a sea captain who was related to the Earl of Mansfield and he brought his young daughter from his, the, the mother was a, an enslaved person in the Caribbean and the captain brought his daughter back to be educated and live with his uncle as his ward. The portrait of Dido Bell of Dido Bell and Schoon Palace is fascinating because of the positioning of the two girls. Dido's head is higher than the head of her cousin which is unusual because normally if there is a black servant in a portrait, they are positioned at a lower place on the portrait than the, the family. 
the whole story of Dido Bell is, as you say, unusual. I mean, you've, you said quite rightly that our father was uh, John Lindsay, who was 24 years old and a, a career naval officer. But the story when he brought this um, Dido Bell back to, to Scotland was that he had been sailing around. You know, at this time, we were engaged in the Seven Year War with France and we were trying to protect the colonies and protect the produce that they were, were trading with. And he was sailing around Jamaica and West Africa when he came across this ship. And in the hold of the ship, he found a black slave, Maria Bell, and she was pregnant. And so he brought her back to Scotland and she had her child there. And this was Dido. Now, that was the story that was given to society. In his obituary, he did confirm that Dido was indeed his illegitimate daughter. And in fact, he actually went on to have um, five more illegitimate children by different mothers. But he did concede in the end, but not not initially. The story was that um, he was saving her from slavery. And when he brought her back, he entrusted her upbringing to his uncle, William Murray, the first Earl of Mansfield, and his wife, Elizabeth Murray. And they were childless. And they already had another great niece, Elizabeth, who they were bringing up because her mother had died. So the idea was that uh, Dido Bell would come and she would join Elizabeth and they would be brought up as playmates. And in later life, she would become her personal assistant. But for whatever reason, rather than a, a lady's companion or a lady's maid, she became a very important part of the family. And as the picture demonstrates with her expensive clothes and her pearls, she was brought up with luxurious surroundings. She got expensive medical treatments and in all ways she was treated as an equal. And this would be unheard of at this time. You know, it wasn't unusual for um, people relations to be given the role of bringing up an illegitimate child. But a mixed race illegitimate child with an enslaved mother, this was huge stir in society. And perhaps it's because Lord Mansfield was actually the Lord Chief Justice of Scotland, the most powerful judge. And in fact, he actually ruled in England as well, on the courts in England. So not many people were going to slight him. And so this was an exceptional case. And perhaps Dido influenced his opinions because he was involved in ruling on several slavery issues. And he described slavery as odious, but he still had to stick to the, the letter of the law. And when he died... He made sure that he left an outright sum and an annuity to Dido and made sure that he made clear in his will that she was a free woman because slavery in his time was still there and still an abhorrent, odious act, as he called it. There's a very good film called Dido Bell and there's also a very good book. So maybe some of our readers would like to try and get that book and also it tells the story and it tells how Dido did then grow up to become almost, you know, if there were classes and society levels, you know, at a higher level in society than her, her cousin Elizabeth uh, because of the inheritance that she got from her, her father. Yeah, and it did actually, the, the portrait did appear on Fake or Fortune, the television programme that looks at, at investigating different paintings. And they did find that it was actually a painting by a Scottish portrait artist, David Martin. And so, yeah, it's well worth looking into that, uh, that particular episode <laughs> yeah. of Fake or Fortune as well. I thought I thought the funny thing the funny thing about the the faker fortune was that when Lady Mansfield was told it might be a David Martin portrait, she said, "Oh, we've got one in the house." And so they went into the house, and there were the exact same style, the same telltale marks on the David Martin in their house that the that was in the the portrait of Dido Bell and Elizabeth. 
Yeah. <laughs> just finding it hanging. I'll have a look at my paintings today, Helen, see what I've got hanging <laughs> around the house, see if I've got a David Martin. But of course, then through time, um, people did waken up to the cruelty that was involved. And so we began, and the Scots were at the forefront of abolition, where they had definitely been guilty before. They did take an important role in recognising that you know, the inhumanity of man upon man and, and you know, began to, to, to try to promote abolition. Yes, and you know, there's several people involved involved in this and people like just cases that, that were, were kind of steering people towards abolition. You know, people like George George Dale, people like Scipio Kennedy, people who came over to Scotland. These were enslaved peoples who came to Scotland and their cases began to get people thinking, there's something not right about this. We have to do something. And these the, you know, the Court of Session in Edinburgh sort of saw these cases. And the central argument was that the enslaved person was having been brought into the com- Commonwealth and baptised by a church in Scotland were then free. Scotland did not suffer people to be enslaved in Scotland. Yep, the owning of personal slaves was banned in Scotland in 1778, which was 29 years before the rest of Britain and the colonies. But it still carried on right up until 1807 when it became illegal. And one of the men that has been absolutely at the heart of this, the most controversial figure, we talked about Lawrence Dundas. He had a relative, Sir Henry Dundas, who was the first Viscount Melville. And if you visit Edinburgh today, the statue of Henry Dundas towers over St Andrew square it's a 40 foot statue on top of 150 foot plinth so to reassure the local residents when they put it up they had to bring in the lighthouse engineer Robert Stevenson to advise on the project and make yes. sure it was safe I, I know and and you know that 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 statue itself and that whole idea during the recent campaigns black lives matter campaign that was targeted that really focused people's attention as to what should we be doing should we be taking down the statues or should we be helping to explain what the actual role was and that takes us on to the two sort of main main players in this campaign in in Scotland the two professors Yep, we've got two academics that are head to head on this um, in terms of how we deal with this with the statues and how we um, tell the story. We can't remove them and blot out history. We have to put plaques on them to tell the story of their involvement. And with, with Sir Henry Dundas, he is accused of delaying the processing of the bill through Parliament. And that meant that for 14 years, people were being traded when it could have been abolished much earlier. Now, the counter-argument is that it was it, that it had to be done slowly to get agreement because eventually what happened is that the slave owners were compensated for what was their property because that's what slaves were considered. So it had to be a softly, softly approach. That's one argument. The other is that this man was um, was responsible for the deaths of of so many thousands of, of enslaved Africans that would otherwise have been freed. So you have this argy-bargy backwards and forwards, but undoubtedly, when you look at the compensation records, a significant proportion of that was going to the people of Edinburgh and helping to build the new town. Yeah, people of Scotland had helped to build all sorts of things, including the railways, Liz, the compensation mm-hmm. for you know the abolition of slavery, the 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 railways. So many things, you know, muse- museums, halls, concert halls, 
all built on the proceeds of that compensation fund, which, of course, the government had to borrow so much money to pay out the compensation that the debt was not paid off in financial terms until 2015. So you have these two academics on the one side. Um, You've got a, a human rights campaigner born in Jamaica, Sir Jeff Palmer. He's an emeritus professor in life sciences. It's actually brewing and distilling at Heriot Watt University. But he has the honour of yeah. being Scotland's first black professor. And when all this, this controversy was going on, the um, the council, the local authority, set up a review board and he chairs the, this review group. And they want to see the truth of what was done, written onto the plaques of these people that have the statues in Edinburgh. But set against him, we have one of our most preeminent historians, Sir Tom Devine. And he's done huge amounts of academic research to inform the debate on Scotland's role in slavery. And his line is very much that the focus shouldn't be on these statues because we were all up to our neck in it. He comes to the defence of of Henry Dundas on the statue and says he was one of the lawyers who defended one of the most the, the most famous cases of a slave trying to gain his freedom. So why would Henry Dundas take the case of a slave if he held these these views that that, that people should be enslaved? Yes, I think that's quite, that's quite important. The Joseph Knight versus Wedderburn, which was a landmark case in in Scottish history, in you know, in, in law, in legal history. But I I I think that there there is a a middle ground. I just don't think we should sweep it under the carpet. We've done it for too many years, Liz. We've we've done that. If these statues are there, tell people who these people were. But give both sides of the argument. Yeah, but also recognise the extent to which it trickled down in society. In eighteen fifteen, sixty five percent of the Scottish exports, the goods that Scotland were trading, were heading for the West Indies. You know, that that, um, one of our most lucrative exports was a coarse linen, and that was called slave cloth. So in Dundee and the other mills around Scotland, they were weaving this slave cloth for it to be exported to the Americas and the Caribbean. This this was to give clothing, clothing to be made into clothing for the enslaved people over there. It was, you know, and so everybody was benefiting. The money that was made from slavery was then paying people who were, working in, in this country, building the buildings. It wasn't just the top people, the, the men on the statues that benefited. It was everybody right down all levels of society. And if you're up there in the Highlands and Islands thinking that you weren't involved in it, well, salted herring, but the majority of it found its way to the West Indies to feed slaves. That was the food. So Tom Devine's argument is that only by acknowledging the full extent of this nation's role in slavery can we begin to construct a meaningful programme of response today to that dark period of our history. Yes, and and you know, why did... It wasn't just a, a thing, oh, we better do something about it that brought about abolition, but things were happening across... The, the globe to to bring this about things like even the, the the people in the plantations the enslaved people were beginning to say this is not the life this is not what we should be doing and so there was uprising so that was beginning to you know jolt people in there was the american revolution there was the french revolution freedom and liberty were becoming very much the the cries so abolition had to come about so it's interesting coming back to Scotland today as you go around 
because of all this academic research that's that's emerging, scraping back the layers, as I say, it's a fascinating story. And it begins to focus your mind looking at these statues in a different different uh, in a different light. And you know, one of the things that struck me recently was uh, the Glasgow coming back to Glasgow University again. And what's the name of the curator? The curator for discomfort is that it? For Helen? discomfort, that's it. Yeah. Yes. Looking at statues and saying, well, what do you see here? Well, if you knew the history behind it, would you see it in the same way? So this is fascinating. And this is the story that we'll tell to our children, not the story that we were brought up on. It wasn't us. Exactly that. And and there's there's tours. There's Now, I can't remember her name, Liz. You can maybe remember it. The lady who does the tours around Edinburgh. Absolutely. Um, I, have, I haven't done one, but I'm desperate to go on I'm one. I'm going mean, to she, do one, yes. She has done so much research as well and pulled it together. Lisa Williams, she's the yeah. director of the Edinburgh Caribbean Association, and she runs Black History Walking Tours. So definitely a big shout out to Lisa Williams. And if you're interested and you want to, to actually walk around and, and, and hear the expert talk about the role of Edinburgh, um, then that's the, the website to search out. Yes, well, well, Liz, I think that was, as you said, a very kind of you know, controversial subject, but I found that even just looking at it and, and researching it, that my eyes have been opened and I will certainly be guiding in a in a in a different way, you know, than you know, now going past places like that. So what what about a word of the week? Have you got anything that might just... <laughs> As we were talking when we were out on our travels this week, going round in the car, we kept on coming up with words. You know, write this one down, write that one down. And <laughs> our, our first one actually came about because of our Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, um, who's Chancellor of the United Kingdom. And we were we were talking about him. Um, he's been getting into a bit of bother in recent weeks. And the first thing that came to mind is that I wish he wouldn't wear those nippet suits. Nippet. <laughs> Right. His suits are always too tight for him. You know, yeah. the fashion. I'm always on to my daughter. I think you should take a size bigger. Oh, yeah. mum, right. it's nip it. It has to be pulled in at the waist because it's just a little bit tight. I think that's what we're finding. Finding when we're going back to guiding, putting on our guiding clothes again. Oops, that's a bit nip it after all the <laughs> indulgences over lockdown. Very true. I think some yeah. of those roads that we were travelling down on our, our expeditions, they were a little bit nip it as well. <laughs> and we're, we're certainly getting a wee a wee burl round there. The other word that we thought about was was burl. Heat's Fair Berlin, with all this work on looking at um, enslaved people and what Scotland's role was. Heat's Fair Berlin. To burl is to go round and round. If you've ever been to a Scottish Cayley or a dance, you're certainly burled round the dance floor during these reels, just to go round and round. (laughs) So a good one to end this episode on. And uh, good luck with the travels as we begin to get back into the world of guiding again. And we'll be updating listeners on uh, how we're going to, to change it so we fit the format of not being around so much and not having so much time for the, the research. Um, but we'll be we'll still be there and I'm still looking for my 500th follower on Instagram. Oh, yes. Come on, you're out there somewhere. <laughs> come on, come on down. Your time is now. Thanks, <laughs> okay, Ellen. Liz, thank you very much. Bye. Bye. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me.
Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.